0: Welcome to Escape Roots with Condé Nast Traveler. My name is Divya Thani, Global Editorial Director of Condé Nast Traveler, and it is my pleasure to introduce you to our podcast series. Travel is all about storytelling a story of a place, of its people, of a journey. And at Condé Nast Traveler, we've always celebrated the most transportative, evocative travel writing. With much of the world currently grounded, we've come together to take you to some of our favorite places, if only in your imagination, by listening to our most loved travel stories read aloud by the writers who penned them. We hope these short escape routes allow you to daydream of far-flung adventures, discover the world's curious corners or recast familiar destinations in a fresh light. And that you love these travel stories as much as I do.
1: Hello, my name is Timothy O'Grady. Welcome to Condé Nast Traveler's Escape Routes. The magazine tends to send its writers either to places they have a specific hunger to know for the first time, or to those to which they yearn to return. I first experienced New Orleans nearly 30 years ago and was struck immediately by its flamboyant and artful revelry and excess. It is an American city unlike any other. I wanted to get back just to experience the particular delight it affords, but also to know it more deeply. You get a chance to do this when you go to a place to write about it. You may have to work all the time, but you are guided to people who can bring you into its interiors and more obscure corners. And when the work is in New Orleans, it involves its share of revelry and excess. I'll be reading what I wrote about it, which appeared in the November 2019 issue of Condé Nast Traveler. Thanks for listening. I found myself in New Orleans between piety, and Desire. It was a bright spring morning. I was on St. Claude in the Bywater looking for the backyard where Jay Pennington had first exhibited his collection of small wooden houses that could be played like musical instruments. Jay lived on Piety Street. Desire was just a block away. There are many things about New Orleans that are unlike anywhere else, the street names among them. The road on which I was walking was named for a French Jesuit but some in the city insist it refers to the entirely secular Claude Tremé, an 18th-century French developer who gave his name to the district that spawned brass bands in the renowned Storyville, where Buddy Bolden and Jelly Roll Morton played the brothels. A wealthy Creole called Bernard de Marigny, who loved dice games and fanciful names, gave abundance, craps, treasure, Rue d'Amour, and hope to the city's grid. There's a mystery street. Anyone coming from a long night on Bourbon might find solace in perdido, which means lost. You feel you are not so much in a city as in an allegory. Jay was once a drummer out of Austin who was looking for a city that suited his sensibility, and he stopped when he got to New Orleans. He played every kind of music, jazz, punk, country, rock, hip-hop, If you want a career in music, he told me, go to New York or Los Angeles. But if you want to live the music and play it until you die, come to New Orleans. It's open, tolerant, appreciative, affordable. Commercial success is not the measure. It may be the last interesting city in America where it's possible to be a Bohemian. Under the name Rusty Laser, JDJ's for Big Freedia, a six-foot, two-inch bounce artist performing in pastel wigs and nail polish. I asked Jay about Big Friedia. He told me, the Queen of Bounce is a non-gender-specific artist who came out of the projects and just appeared on the red carpet at the Met Gala. Everybody loves Big Friedia. In some ways, we're ten years ahead, and in others, incarceration levels, education, political corruption... 10 years behind. When I found Jay on Piety Street, he was wearing a T-shirt that read, Everything you love about New Orleans is because of black people. He told me his backyard had grown too small to accommodate everyone who wanted to listen to and play on his musical houses. So he and the installation artists Delaney Martin and Taylor Shepard raised the money to buy an old metal factory set in a grove of trees on the Industrial Canal and called it Music Box Village. You'd never expect that behind the weed-strewn parking lot and rusty, corrugated iron fencing, there could be a place of such enchantment where an ever-evolving cluster of musical houses can be played on by artists, visitors, school children, and neighbors. The setting came alive as Jay moved among them, twirling, pulling, and strumming the houses into an ensemble piece that collaborated with the bird song, wind, river sounds, and freight train whistles outside. Later, Jay drove me back west where I'd come from, pausing to show me the magnificent murals outside Studio B, a warehouse and community arts project by Brandon B. Mike Odoms, chronicling with vast paintings the African-American struggle for recognition and rights. Artists are here to disturb the peace, declares James Baldwin in one. Put paint where it ain't, says B. Mike. Jay then dropped me on Frenchman Street in the Marigny, where I strolled towards the New Orleans that every visitor knows. French colonists brought the city into being in the spring of 1718 with a few shacks on a marsh by the mouth of the Mississippi. They were after cypress trees, hung with ghostly Spanish moss, a substance so fine that writer William Weeks Hall declared only the Chinese could paint it. Louis XV handed Louisiana over to his Spanish cousin Charles III in 1762. What we now know as the French Quarter was built by the Spanish over the ensuing years. Napoleon got it back in 1800, but sold Louisiana to the United States in 1803 to finance his wars. The ethnic mix grew rich to an unusual degree. French aristocrats, Anglo-Americans, Creoles from St. Domingue and Haitian freemen on the run from revolutions, Filipinos, African slaves, Sephardic Jews, immigrants from Europe and the smugglers, gamblers, prostitutes and pirates, often found in ports, all congregated in New Orleans, bringing their languages, foods, and entertainments with them. It is in the main a Catholic city, ethnically, if not in the credo itself. Perhaps it's the Baroque imagery. Perhaps it's the cleansing presence of the confessional. But a life here can move between piety and desire, as I did, walking on St. Claude, with each feeding off the other, Tennessee Williams was, as he said, well acquainted with the diversions of the harbour front, and when he saw a streetcar with the destination Desire in its window, he named a play after it. But while he was living here, he always wanted to keep in view the welcoming and forgiving arms of Jesus behind the St. Louis Cathedral. In New Orleans, he said, I found the kind of freedom I had always needed, and the shock of it against the Puritanism of my nature, has given me a subject, a theme, which I have never ceased exploiting. New Orleans evolved into the Sybaritic, Dionysian capital of the USA, perhaps of the world. Las Vegas performs an amateur hour by comparison. It is a place of unrelenting visual delight, where even the houses wear jewelry, of delectation, joy, and revelry. With the festival, it seems, every week. There's even one down the road in Morgan City called the Louisiana Shrimp and Petroleum Festival. Life is not a grind here, or quotidian, or even a cabaret. It's more a masked ball. When I first came to New Orleans, nearly 30 years ago, I met George Schmidt, painter, gallery owner, co-founder of the new Leviathan Oriental Foxtrot Orchestra, and boulevardier in classic suit and silk bow tied by hand. Our Creole carnival is a thing of tableau and masks, he told me. When I was little, my parents dressed me as Toulouse-Lautrec. You'd see somebody get out of a car in a pharaoh costume. You lived for it. It's pure play, amoral, pre-enlightenment or like England before the Puritan revolution. Behind a mask, you can be yourself. Music moves through the city like power through an electrical grid or blood in the body. From spasm bands in the street to jazz funerals, zydeco weddings, bounce clubs and back porch blues, the music is rooted in life as it is lived. It expresses sorrow and induces the euphoria that relieves it. Musicians seem to know that if they stray too far from the roots, they will lose themselves. Singer Robin Barnes told me she arranges her tour schedule so she can be back home on Sunday to sing in church. We all do that, she said. Hip-hop artists sample gospel phrases. Brass dominates because it was first of all in the marching funeral bands. It's everywhere. There was hardly a waiter I spoke with who didn't play trombone or clarinet or sing. Ben Jaffe, a fourth-generation musician whose great-grandfather played French horn in the Russian Imperial Army, had a front-row seat. His parents re-energized Preservation Hall, the small, stripped-down national monument on St. Peter, where traditional jazz is delivered in pure form five times per day. When my parents came to the quarter in 1961, he told me, it looked like Paris in the 1920s to them. It was a liberation. My father was a tuba player and was finally hearing music that had a social function and was not just entertainment. The foundation of music here is the funeral. African-Americans for more than a century have been paying into neighborhood social aid and pleasure clubs, so they'll have a good send-off when they die. In the front line are steppers and club officials, then family and marching band. And after that, comes the second line, composed of everyone who wants to join in. Once the body is buried, the drums roll, the tempo picks up, and the music becomes joyful. It honors the dead and provides relief for the living. They eat red beans and rice and catfish, and they dance. The second line parades have become such an expression of joy that they happen now on Sundays, whether somebody has died or not. The clubs have names such as Valley of the Silent Men, Divine Ladies, and the Big Nine. The Mardi Gras Indians and the Baby Dolls are occasional adjuncts. There are high steppers and sashes and derby hats. There are blaring trombones and feathers and painted faces. It's another version of the masked ball. Everybody is welcomed in as the parade passes by. A 17-year-old rapper named T. Lyons I met is hungry for a career, but he's also a member of the Perfect gentlemen's Social Aid and Pleasure Club, and he comes out in feathers and does backflips on second-line Sundays. You feel you are not in the USA. Some residents call it the northernmost island of the Caribbean. I saw a timeline graffiti that showed the dates of the French, Spanish, and American occupations with a question mark at the end, as if some other jurisdiction might one day prevail. In the early days, Americans were exiled to the territory west of Canal Street, and in consequence it looks different. There has been, and still is, a cultural war between revelry and Puritan probity, and it's clear most residents want revelry to prevail. George Schmidt used to go around during Mardi Gras week with a bumper sticker that read, America go home. It is better to live here in sackcloth and ashes than to own the whole state of Ohio, the writer Lafcadio Hearn observed in the 19th century. The revelry and all normal life came to a halt when Hurricane Katrina hit on the 29th of August 2005. It was an apocalypse. 80% of the city went underwater. More than a thousand people died, and the population was halved. A rapper named B would met the year before had grabbed a passing boat and gotten an elderly wheelchair-bound woman named Miss Beulah into it, along with three children and a woman with a baby. They paddled for days in the toxic water, past cars and corpses, going ashore to get food from abandoned restaurants. Loose pit bulls attacked them in the night, The media broadcast images of looters like them, and the National Guard was deployed. Finally, after eight days, they were rescued by a churchman who drove them to Texas. They'd all survived. The city learned how vulnerable it is, and also that the national government did not seem to care about it. A black Marine told me that Katrina had broken his faith in his country, which could send armies around the world but not look after its own people. But they also saw that the world was on their side. Money poured in, even from impoverished Bangladesh. Thousands arrived to help rebuild, and communities rallied. Jay Pennington told me that when the storm hit, his neighbor walked into a butcher shop and took away meat that would have gone off anyway. The National Guard could have shot him, Jay said. But he put his TV and his music system out on the sidewalk and started grilling for the people coming up from the inundated Lower Ninth Ward. The party started. They had music, they had sports, and they had barbecue. New Orleans is sinking, and the waters around it are rising. Pumping and natural settlement have brought subsidence, and the sea is devouring football field-sized chunks of the coastline every day. Venture capitalists from faraway cities have put up developments in areas devastated by Katrina. Prices have become unaffordable for many. But I didn't meet anyone who wasn't grateful to Katrina in some way. The silencing of the music made me realize what a rare and precious place this is, Ben Jaffe said. Green initiatives were launched. Communities deepened their connectivity. Artists arrived. Houses were built and new businesses opened. The city woke up, environmentalist Ella de Leo told me. It became open to change. After Jay set me down, I walked west through the Marigny. It was still technically morning, at least for some. I caught the smell of beignet and coffee flavored with chicory. The houses were dressed up like divas, and there was a hush under the broad leaves of the trees. I crossed the street and entered the Wearyart Gallery, where I talked with founders Colin Ferguson and Catherine Todd, who helped more than a hundred local artists by linking them directly with buyers online. Then I crossed Esplanade into the quarter. The density increased, but the pace stayed slow and easy. There are those who disdain the quarter as supine before tourism, with everything faked, from virgin worship and witchcraft to its own sweet gaiety, the streets clogged with Midwesterners in shorts and socks, and the full-on partying American male, his voice a perpetual shout, heading for oblivion as he downs his 25th cherry bomb or tequila sunrise. But I'd always been seduced, and still was that morning. The city has artfully confined the excess to a few blocks of Bourbon Street, and much of the rest of the quarter remains residential. The ironwork is like lace, the balconies teem with tropical greenery, dancing skeletons and busts of carnival kings and queens. It seduces with its surprise, its ethnic mix, its inclination to refinement, ornate speech, ribaldry and emotional breakdown. Men replete with arcane knowledge and wearing white suits with boutonniers and handmade shoes and carrying silver-topped canes still take five-hour Friday lunches at Galatoire's. Death is as much in the air as joie de vivre. Bodies gurgle upward through the saturated earth. But death occasions a party, and a man can be called Fox and a woman George. It's camp, debauched, baroque, witty. It's a tonic, a living work of art. I've never found anything quite like it.
0: We hope you enjoyed our Escapes Root podcast. Please remember to like and subscribe to help boost us on the charts and ensure that you're the first to hear about our new episodes.